Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who understands the importance of honesty and vulnerability in building trusted teams. I'm quite happy that people understand what I'm not great at because I think it gives other people the ability to do the same. And who realised early on that mentoring and coaching can be more effective than condemnation. Rather than giving me a good dressing down, which I absolutely deserved, he took a more coaching leadership style and he decided that actually his experience, his knowledge, his character could be used to bring on this young junior NCO. Warrant Officer Class 1 John O'Neill joined the British Army in November 1999 became a private in 2nd Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. That's the PWRR. He has served the majority of his career within light roll rifle companies, holding every appointment from signaller to company sergeant major, and serving in Bosnia, Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan. He was regimental sergeant major at 2 PWRR and the Mission Ready Training Centre, and then worked with the Specialised Infantry Group in North and East Africa. John was a corporal instructor at the Infantry Training Centre Catterick, then instructed at the Infantry Battle School on the Platoon Commanders Division. This enthusiasm for training and development led him to his current role as the Command Sergeant Major of Army Recruiting and Initial Training Command. In this wide-ranging and honest conversation, we explored everything from leading and supporting your peers to dealing with toxic leaders. But I started by asking John about his first lessons in leadership. I joined the army at 16. I was really fortunate that I went on to a Bosnia tour not long after joining, which is probably the best way to be introduced and assimilated into a new organisation because you go away, you get to know people. Um, but more importantly, I started to get to learn how to lead myself. So how I was going to fit in an organisation that was quite daunting for a young lad. And it was quite new. And I became a junior NCO at 18. And when I look back at that now, I recognize how young and how hard that task was but but at the time I think there was probably an air of arrogance where I thought I can can do this I can handle this it's no problem and I realized I had I had a lot to learn and I lived up to a stereotype I lived up to what I perceived an infantry junior NCO had to be and that caused me to sort of really lead with my heart over my head and almost everything that I did a good example that, that I thought about was on op banner training with NITAT, where we were in a public order scenario with a real desire to make an impression and to lead by example on a baseline, overly aggressive, came forward. Obviously, the people I was leading decided to come with me. So you were simulating public order training, which is where British Army had to conduct effectively riot control with shields and batons against an aggressive civilian force, which in this case, this was in training, so this was being simulated by another army unit. Yes, yes, so civil disorder. It was one of the likely tasks that we would encounter when we 
deployed out to Northern Ireland. And there were some really experienced old hands in the organization that had repeated operational experience uh, on Opbanner. They'd done numerous tours there. They knew exactly what to expect. They knew how the training was going to go, what kind of serials would be used against them in training to test their readiness and their ability to go and conduct that operation. And I didn't know because it was my first time of going there. And with a desire to impress people, my subordinates, my peers and my superiors, I thought that the way to impress was to be assertive, aggressive, dominant and lead by example. And I effectively put others and myself in real harm's way because I decided to move out of the baseline. I decided to move forward. There was no requirement to be snatching anyone at that point. I let the red mist descend, went forward. My team followed me. We all got a good shoe in. The whole baseline had to move forward. And a really, really good junior NCO that I suppose now I look back, he became a mentor to me rather than giving me a good dressing down, which I absolutely deserved. He took a more coaching leadership style and he decided that actually his experience, his knowledge, his character could be used to bring on this young junior NCO who now I look back, he recognised the challenge of being a leader at that young age with a lack of experience, with a desire to do well and a desire to impress. He explained that I should actually be a bit more considered encouraged me to think before acting and then his mentorship continued all the way into Northern Ireland and then right through training for the fire strikes as well in 2004 the same individual was there a steady hand on the shoulder he was experienced he was credible he had good character and he really encouraged me and he gave me the tools to succeed really early on as a junior NCA. And listening to what you were saying there about initially wanting to impress and be the sort of aggressive figure I imagine that one of the hardest promotional steps in the entire army must be from private to lance corporal because you're going from within your peer group to suddenly having an element of command and that must happen again when you go up to corporal. From my experience the jump from private to lance corporal is the hardest transition I've made in a 24-year army career. There's an old saying that the rank of lance corporal is the hardest to get and the easiest to lose and that's probably true. It's because you probably rely on more mateship than leadership and you're trying to assert yourself and do the right thing with people that only weeks before were your peer group. I was younger than quite a few of them as well, which lent a whole load of different challenges. But yeah, I absolutely agree. That first step from private to Lance Corporal, where you're finding your way, you aren't necessarily 100% sure of your own abilities probably too immature to recognize your strengths and weaknesses you'd probably try and hide your weaknesses because it would undermine your credibility and your authority and the desire to do the right thing as the example i gave on the baseline on northern ireland training can lead you to make some pretty poor decisions and as you've gone on being promoted and having more responsibility for training and mentoring people at that rank and continuing as lance corporals what have been the things that you've told them that have helped them develop their leadership? So I think that the old saying of you need to know your people, but I think it's probably more important that you know yourself. You need to know what your strengths and weaknesses are because if you're quite happy 
to have your weaknesses known and exposed, it means other members of your team can sort of mitigate some of your weaknesses with their strengths because that's what teams do. They they make sure that they interlock, they overlap, they mutually support one another. And I, and I would encourage people to really reflect about who they are and what they're good at and what they're not good at because only then you can start to really understand what your own leadership style is going to look like rather than trying to take someone else's that you think is right and then apply it to you which may not necessarily fit your attributes or your character and for you did that develop much more when you became a corporal and you're working with other corporals to effectively develop each other is that where that really started to happen for you yeah so i, I was really really fortunate in b company to peter bra the company that i promoted into and then was lucky enough to stay in for a fairly significant period of time the junior ncos that i was lucky enough to work with were absolutely all on the same page it was a real kind of badge of honor to be professional it was seen as we were all passionate about soldiering we all pushed each other on in the best possible way we would do pt together we would help prep for pre-courses together we could probably even early back then identify you can't be good at everything and some of my closest friends were exceptional at certain things and we were all happy in our own skin to talk about what I could do that someone else probably necessarily couldn't do and you could see real gems in each other where you think oh that that person's really good at that I suppose we were still a quite a humble bunch of people where because there was always people that were that were better and but it really drove us on together as a collective where we we absolutely looked after each other yeah and so you were reinforcing each other and identifying each other's strengths but also supporting each other's weaknesses and from this you then went on to go and do an operational tour how much did that impact you going forward onto operations and to turn that skill and strength and development that you had in training into an operational theater so knowing how people would perform under pressure is really really important and knowing how people react when they're tired how people are going to react when they are in a more emotional state was quite useful because we all saw that in training we all saw what would be each other's triggers we probably all saw how what things we wouldn't cope with as well so as a collective of people we probably understood that certain situations would be better suited to someone else's character rather than our own and you'd probably be more willing to ask for advice so so i think that the training that we had received really allowed us to cope on operations but we also were able to identify what attributes in each other would be better suited for a particular task or not as sometimes it would, would be the case but i also think that you are a family so you cope together when things are going well or when things are going particularly badly you can talk to one another you trust each other there's a mutual respect amongst each other but you also recognize that you have a responsibility to the people that you're leading and it's probably not appropriate to air all of that and burden them with that so we supported one another and we'd become used to doing that in training so the section commanders did the section commanders so all the junior ncos and the senior ncos where you you became used to knowing 
where you could go for help. And, and that was really important because we'd, we'd rehearsed it by doing it in training. So it was, it was a really easy kind of thing to do. And in doing so, you were protecting the privates from bad stuff rolling downhill. You could contain that within yourselves. Yeah, so I think that sometimes you don't have the privileged access to information that, that I have the luxury of having now. The perception of something can look quite different to a young junior NCO to the reality. And you can probably become quite judgy because you have an idea but don't know all the fact. So you can find yourself jumping to a conclusion that might be based on a half-truth. Are there any examples there such as you're getting an order and you think, oh, that's rubbish, why are we doing that? But you don't understand the full picture because you haven't been privy to it. Yeah, so I, so I think during the during my Iraq tour in 2005, we were asked to do some pretty long vehicle patrols. I remember thinking at the time, I'm not quite sure how we're going to continue with this tempo. And you start to really question the decision-making that's led you into a situation where you're going out onto a long vehicle move in them kind of temperatures, in them kind of conditions, in that environment, and then the impact on our people, and you can start to really question the logic and the rationale of the people that made the decision. But of course, we didn't have all of the factors. We didn't know what kind of planning had taken place. We didn't know what kind of pressures our superiors were under. We didn't know what was driving their decision-making. None of that was known to us. And I think now that that's why I think it's so important that you explain the why and that you bring people along the planning process with you because if someone's been involved in the planning, they can see all the factors, they can see all the deductions, they can see all the resources, they can see the constraints, they can see the risk appetite. And if you do that, then people are a lot more willing to be brought along the journey. And then you have this unifying purpose where people are striving to the same goal because they understand and they believe in it and they're bought in and they're invested. And that was lacking then because that probably wasn't necessarily the cultural or appropriate at the time. But now that's something that has absolutely driven my style of leadership of explaining why. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you've, you've taken that experience. And also, of course, as you become more senior as an NCO and then a warrant officer, you're able to coach your officer counterparts on we really need to get the why out here and explain this to them. Otherwise, we're not going to get buy-in from the rest of the company or the battalion. And that's a really, really important part of the journey of leadership that I've been on, that when I became a platoon sergeant and then I was given a young platoon commander, we'd come to the end of our mission-specific training to be held as the Theatre Reserve Battalion in Cyprus. And I had a young platoon commander that was brought into the platoon off the back of the platoon commander's battle course. He didn't know the platoon. And right at the end of our mission-specific training, he was being asked to lead a platoon that I knew, they trusted me, there was mutual respect amongst us, I knew them, I knew what their strengths and weaknesses were, and he was being brought into that environment. And I remember thinking, how would I have coped as the younger version of me if someone asked me to do the same? I remember thinking that he he has got an enormous challenge and it's my job to make sure that he has got the tools and he's got the support in order to do that job. The Platoon Science Battle Course was really, really good at laying out what our responsibilities were as senior soldiers. And I think the being calm under pressure, knowing your people, 
making sure that you're into the detail and you're giving your platoon commander the freedom to make the right decisions and to look at a problem was what was explained to us on the platoon science battle course. And how did you put that into practice with this junior officer? So I was really lucky that the young platoon commander that was assigned to me and to the platoon was obviously incredibly enthusiastic. He was calm himself. And I think when I look back now, none of us had been in combat and he was no different to us. The fact that when we were going to deploy to Afghanistan and when it did happen, it happened to us all for the first time. And that was a quite a good leveler. The fact that it was shared hardship. He was absolutely 100% taking the same risk as all of us. And he led really well. He performed well under pressure. He was calm. He never ever led with his heart. His head was always in the right place. There was occasions where him and I would disagree on certain things, but we would do it very, very much in private. And there was always a united front when we left anything. And I remember my respect for him just continued to grow throughout our time together as a platoon commander and platoon sergeant relationship where he was shielding the platoon from a lot. When you say in terms of shielding the platoon, it's they were being asked to do more and more arduous tasks and he and you knew that the platoon may have needed more rest, more time to recuperate. Yeah, exactly that. So he was taking on more than his fair share of responsibility. We would work together late into the night. He wouldn't ask any of our people to do anything that he wouldn't do or couldn't do himself. And then he would take all the additional responsibilities of all the planning, all the estimates. He would do all of the after-action reviews, the debriefs, the patrol reporting, Obviously, he was helped by all of us, but he very, very much saw that as his responsibility. He was happy to take help, but he very, very much understood his place and we all understood ours in order to support him and assist. But he was, he was a good platoon commander and our relationship started in a really good place because I could see that he was utterly invested from the minute he turned up. And so part of your role there in the junior leadership aspect is aiding in his legitimacy with the platoon because he has the authority, he's the platoon commander. But for you as the platoon sergeant, it's helping him ease into the culture and then I guess translating some of the things and orders down to the platoon. So a choice may be made and you could explain, no, the reason why this choice has been made is because of this. There's a whole credibility conversation when it comes to, at that point, I had deployed three times on operations, so to Bosnia, to Northern Ireland, and to Iraq. Um, a lot of my soldiers had just come back off a ISR task force deployment to Kosovo. They were a pretty cohesive unit that had been reconfigured from a more cop team or back, back to a platoon. And he had to then try and come on and understand all of that. But there was an enormous perception of the credibility gap of what can this young platoon commander do that the person that's been leading us up to this point as a platoon sergeant not do? Is there a requirement for this person? And that was really, really important that I, from the beginning, let the platoon know that I was always the interim measure and the platoon commander was always going to be coming. So setting the conditions for the arrival of the platoon commander in their mind early was really important that when he did arrive, 
it wasn't a disturbance to the force and the balance of power. It was very, very much a expected thing. And explaining what the different roles and responsibilities are. And also, I guess, explaining what is the benefit of this person being in the platoon. Yeah, so he absolutely brought that. And now I know them pillars of officership of character, example, responsibility. He was ultimately responsible. He had to be the example. And he was ultimately going to be the person that was expected to be in command. I suppose the character, my character was known to them. His was unknown. So they had to learn and work him out. And it's an interesting thing to watch a platoon of soldiers work out what this new thing that's been introduced into their world is all about. Because I was a known known. So this instance shows a really great relationship between you and your partner officer. Have there ever been times in your career, and you don't need to be specific about them, where you've had a less good officer? And part of your role has been to ensure their orders are delivered, but also trying to improve their buy-in or maybe rethinking about their orders. Because I, 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 I think people talk about this anecdotally, but I've never had the chance to ask somebody what it's like to be stuck in the middle like that. So it's, it, that's, it's a really challenging situation and, it, and it's hard to lead in that environment because I, I have had it, yes. I have had it where when I look now, the person just wasn't the example he should have been. Therefore, his command authority was always in doubt because he was such a poor example. So that pillar of example undermined the command element to him because he was unwilling to share the hardship we shared. There is an expectation that we are all in this together. And his lack of example in that area specifically really, really undermined the command part of his officership. So how do you manage that as an NCO or a warrant officer? What do you do to ensure that there's loyalty in the chain of command is retained, but also so that the soldiers are protected and that in whatever environment it was, whether that's back in barracks or out in the field, you are getting people home safe whilst also trying to complete the mission. So in that specific example, without going into, into the detail, we were lucky that we had an absolutely fantastic officer who was the absolute example. So I was able to protect, insofar as my soldiers' eyes, the reputation of the officer corps, because there was such an obvious leadership alternative in that organisation who was a shining light in every way that could really, really mitigate the shortfalls of the other person. But it was really challenging because all the time, the poor example led to the thought of, if he's poor at that, is his decision-making poor? Is his planning poor? Is he managing us in the best way? And I think ultimately... All of them were, he was doing the right thing, but because he presented in such a poor way in the example front, 
I had to just continually say and remind people that the decisions that were being made were made with the best information available and the best resource. So the command authority was effectively entirely dependent upon your legitimacy, which is that it was only by you reassuring, which is effectively one of the major roles of this uh, NCO and a warrant officer, persuading down like, yes, this may not look good, but here's the reasons why it's good. So you were shoring up the legitimacy. When you phrase it like that, yeah. So shoring up the legitimacy based on mutual respect and trust that they trusted my belief in your judgment and my judgment that what we were doing was the right thing they trusted me thanks for sharing that i'm sure it was a difficult thing to talk about so i really appreciate that one of the more unusual things that you've done is you have been an instructor on the platoon commander's division as a color sergeant but you were taking the role as a platoon commander, which is normally a captain's role. How did that come about and what was that like for you as a senior NCO doing what's normally an officer's role? What were the challenges for that and how did that happen? So I think that ultimately to be an effective leader, you need to know your profession inside out and you need to absolutely 100% be enthusiastic about what you're doing. That all started for me in Catterick as an instructor in the infantry training centre where I learnt my craft by teaching. And therefore, I went on and did the platoon science battle course and that went well. And then it allowed me to return to the infantry battle school as an instructor. So in my mind, at the tactical level, my knowledge of infantry platoon tactics and the fundamentals of company group tactics were sound however i had some weaknesses and those weaknesses i made known to a fantastic oc of the platoon commanders division where between 2011 and 2013 there was gaps in the all battle infantry battle school in the officer corps particularly so the oc is overseeing the whole platoon commanders course at a major yes so a brilliant major from the Duke of Lancaster's regiment, he was responsible for the training delivery on the platoon commanders battle course. We had platoon commanders, two of them in each platoon in syndicates, and I did one course with my syndicate platoon commander, Captain, and he was short notice trawled to go back out to Afghanistan, which left a gap with inside our workforce. So my OC clearly wasn't going to tolerate that gap and he therefore treated it, but he treated it by using someone in his workforce that he thought had the knowledge, skills and experience to deliver it as an interim solution. So normally what is the difference for those that aren't aware? Why do you have a captain and a colour sergeant on the platoon commander's battle course? Like so many appointments in the British Army, there's an absolute complementing feature of having an officer and a senior NCO and it works and it's proven it was no different in the infantry battle school on the platoon commanders division the platoon commanders generally speaking would teach British army doctrine they would teach the combat estimate and they would assess the student in appointment as a platoon commander because they've done the course and they have lived that role so they were really really key for that the color sergeant instructor 
would be there to teach infantry platoon weapons, infantry platoon tactics, the field craft element that needs to be brought up in the students from their time at Sandhurst, which delivered us a fantastic product that we would then sharpen it into the infantry platoon commander that we were requiring. So both complemented each other really well. We had a color sergeant instructor that would do all the logistical support and make sure that the student platoon sergeant was being heavily mentored so they understood the role of the platoon sergeant in their platoons and you had the platoon commander that was more focused on the platoon commander in appointment and how he was planning, delivering orders and then executing the plan. So you were doing the platoon commander's role as a colour sergeant. Did that mean you had to do both parts or you were just doing the platoon commander's bit? No, I was really, really fortunate that the colour sergeants on the infantry battle school, uh, sorry, on the platoon commander's division at the time, were really, really good lads. And I was basically in, in a situation where there was two colour sergeants in this syndicate and the colour sergeants that I worked with were more than happy to continue doing the prescribed stereotypical role of a colour sergeant instructor on the division and they recognised that I was required as an interim solution to become the, the syndicate lead. I think they also recognised that initially I was being heavily mentored by some incredibly capable senior captains that had been ops officers, that had been IOs, that had been fire support between commanders, that had all sorts of different skill sets and I was assigned a fantastic rifles officer who mentored me in what I declared as my areas of weakness which was my ability to create operational staff work and my ability to write orders on these platoon commanders that would be going to their commanding officers when they left. I was then teaching and learning at the same time. For me it was a fantastic opportunity, really supported my OC demonstrated a level of trust in me and respect that I could do this thing and he gave me an opportunity and that opportunity I probably can't articulate how much that added to my professional competence but also my leadership development. You've mentioned Catrick a couple of times. Why was that such an important moment for you? So to me my time at the infantry training centre Catterick as a corporal instructor was really the crucible where I was forged as a leader and as an infantry junior NCO because I was learning from a really capable peer group that were all there based on generally speaking merit. I learned to value diversity in cat badge terms where other organisations culturally did things differently but I was able to take the best of everything that I saw. I was given 12 young people that arrived as civilians and I was told with a real clear purpose, turn them into infantry soldiers in six months. And it was a real responsibility to do the right thing by these people. And therefore you learn how to manage people. You learn how to talk to people. You learn how to manage people's personal dramas they come in with. But these people aren't soldiers. They don't arrive as soldiers. So it presents all sorts of challenges where you have to balance between a real transactional style to a really transformational style, sometimes within hours of each other, sometimes with different students that require different application of leadership styles. And back then, I don't think I'd probably recognise the value of it until now I look back and realise that I was learning by teaching. I had 
a responsibility for 12 people. I had to manage them. I had to report on them. I had to heavily mentor them. And my start point with them when they arrived was always the same, which was, I respect you because you're here. I respect you because you've turned up. You're a volunteer. No one's told you to be here. You know the risk. You can see what's going on in the media and you're here. And it was a really useful place to start from because then I think they realized that I valued them and I was going to treat them as individuals and I respected the decision they'd made to join the infantry. John, it's been amazing to hear about your experiences. We've not touched on anything beyond your time as a colour sergeant because you've talked so vividly about your time as a Lance Corporal and a Corporal Sergeant and a colour sergeant. And the thing that I find very distinct about every phase of your leadership is a real awareness of strengths and weaknesses, both of yourself as an individual, but of the team. And the importance of diversity, understanding your people and understanding how to get the best out of them towards a unifying purpose and bringing them on board. As an Army Command Sergeant Major now, would you say that that has continued on? Is that a defining aspect of your leadership? I think so, yeah. Mutual respect, trust, and humility above all things. Being humble in success, being humble in victory, being humble with your achievements, and making sure that people understand that you've done none of this on your own is really, really important. And valuing the contribution and everyone's service is the same. Everyone takes the same risk. That's a real leveller, regardless of we've all got a mum, we've all got a dad, we've all got people that love us and we all take the same risk. And if your start point is there, it's a really good place to build on with people. I've learnt that in a journey and I'm quite happy that people understand what I'm not great at because I think it gives other people the ability to do the same. It's been great to hear about your reflections on leadership and thinking about how you implement that and teach that to others today. We'd like to finish with a couple of quickfire questions. So first of all, how would you like to spend your perfect Sunday? So my perfect Sunday would probably be a gentle run with my youngest son on his bike, talking to me the whole way round, and then finishing, sitting in the garden, enjoying an IPA and then getting ready for the next week. The reality often looks like a load of tasks and a load of pressure and prepping. But my ideal would definitely be an IPA in the sun. Um, what films, books, podcasts or people have taught you the most about leadership? I really, really like the book, which is called The Power of Vulnerability by a woman called Brené Brown. And it talks to how by exposing your own vulnerability, it allows others to do the same. And it creates a relationship of trust and respect that is hard to replicate in anything else. And it's something that I've come across recently that really, really spoke to me as a good lesson for life. If you could offer one piece of advice about leadership to Lance Corporal O'Neill, what would it be? Work out who you are. Work out who you are. Don't prescribe to a stereotype or a bias that someone sets for you based on what you think you need to be. 
work out your own way because it's the most genuine, incredible way. WO1, John O'Neill, Command Sergeant Major at the Army Recruiting and Initial Training Command. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure, thank you. WO1 John O'Neill learned the importance of coaching and mentoring and leadership early on in his career and recognised that it can be more effective than punishment and correcting mistakes. He realised that understanding your strengths, weaknesses and leadership style is vital for your success as an individual and a team because an organisation requires diversity of thought and ability to thrive. I was particularly grateful for his honesty about working with both good and bad leaders and finding ways to get the job done and maintain respect for the chain of command when the leader is poor. It also showed how vital it is for leaders to lead by example. Peers can also be leaders to each other by encouraging self-reflection and creating an environment where vulnerability and honesty about mistakes and weaknesses is supported because that is the first step in development. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army, or the United Kingdom government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.